so men wees nou, maar nou sê, ek was iemand geïnvold, maar dit telt nie. Wees van dit terug? Ek gaan nou net, as die naans ons afval en nie. Matthew chapter 9, the end of Matthew 9, and we're going to go into Matthew 10 today. Matthew 9, the end of Matthew 9, we see Jesus, it's this, this, this executive summary, this reflective summary of Jesus' mission where um, it says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And we know also that we are called as disciples of Jesus, disciples are imitators, so we are called to do as he did, so he said as well. But we are called to go and proclaim the good news. Um, as he did, and that this good news that we are to proclaim, it's good news, it's not good advice. Um, it is. It speaks of a past event, not of future actions, like someone to take. So we are there to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago. It is done. And we, proclaim, we, we are proclaiming that good news Right now, that's what we are called to go and claim. And what we saw there, this specific pattern that we saw, I just want to reflect on that before we move on. But we saw there's a pattern we can learn from in these missions of Christ. And that is that as he went, he first went in obedience. He didn't wait for things to happen and to be everything to be perfect before he went. He went. And as he went in obedience, and as we should go in obedience, then he saw miracles. My life, when I have gone, I have seen miracles. When I said it out, I don't, I typically don't see miracles. Isn't that so? Okay, so just a bit of logic testing. But as we go, we see miracles. The other thing that happened to Jesus is that as he went, he saw the crowds and compassion was stirred. So he didn't sit around waiting, oh God, give me a heart for these people. As he went and saw them, he got compassion that that drove him. He worked until he was he, he was tired. The scriptures are where Jesus worked the whole day. People were so tired, he just wanted to take a break. And the people would follow him, would follow him. But then he would be moved with compassion and he would just continue ministering. But that compassion said, as we go, we first go, then that. And as you go, if you're in Cape Town like me or wherever you're from, you might see that it might seem that the harvest isn't that ready. If you read the news, if you see sick the things that's going on, it seems like nobody wants Jesus and we're this weird minority that everybody's actually shunning. And so the people wouldn't be open for Jesus. That's typically what one starts to think. They always say every pastor says that my 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 ground is the hardest ground. But as we go, Jesus, as Jesus went, he saw now. Even in that time, in his days, it didn't seem like revival was imminent. But when Jesus went, he saw the harvest being white and ready for harvest. In Samaria, even in John 4, where like the Jews didn't even want to go. He saw the harvest being white, red of palms. When you go, you'll see, oh, there are so many people ready for the gospel. That is the truth. It's always true because the human heart has always, always been designed in exactly the same way. And you can call it a, a God-shaped hole or whatever it is, but it's always there. And every generation of every place and every person, and the harvest is always Really just look at your all of this one somehow. And what also happened to Jesus as he went, he had this incredible desire for co-workers. Just for more, he was the only one then. Just for more co-workers. And that desire comes in us. Pray the Lord of the harvest for more harvesters. That desire comes to us as we go. So these beautiful things start happening. As we go, we see miracles, the compassion is stirred, the harvest is actually ready, our view changes, and we desire and start praying that God would add more people to come to work with us. As we go, so we don't wait for these things, we go and see them as we go in obedience. And so, the last thing that I want to reflect on is this that the Apostle Paul wrote and says that the gospel is. 
is 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 a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. Okay, the Greeks were the intellectuals of the day, and so sharing about someone that came to die for your sins on a cross seems like a, a story that the Greeks would think is foolishness. And like Shaolin said, sometimes you don't want to share because these people are smart. I'm going to share a story about someone who died on a cross and how he believe it. And the enemy comes in us and he actually makes us ashamed of this of this story. But all of you sitting here, you're saved by that by that story. Some of that story has an impact on the human heart like nothing else. And when that story hits home, that's the only way in which you can be transformed. Is through hearing and then recognizing that there is truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then receiving that and everything changes. It's the only way. But are we winning in this environment in Cape Town? We work with the Greeks. We are Greeks. But in this room are some of the smartest people I know. If I would count all the university degrees in this room alone, some lot. And yet you believe, don't you? And so there is there is hope even for the Greeks. And we shouldn't be ashamed because we're called to be, and we will sometimes be fools to them. And we must be ready for that. Are you willing for that? Are, are you willing to be ridiculed sometimes? You're a fool. I can't believe you believe all these all these fairy tales. That's okay. That's okay. Are you willing to be a fool to the Greeks? We're not called to be so wise and so smart. We can have the right answer that it just pearl out in Greek. It's supposed to be foolishness. Because the wisdom of God is made manifest. It's foolish to man. Okay, so reflection. The very next verse, Matthew 10, is where Jesus calls his disciples and he says, Okay, I have gone. And done all these things, you, you, you've seen it. And as disciples, disciples are those who imitate. So the next logical step would be for them to also, some, at some stage, go. I don't think they thought they were going to go then, because they were definitely not ready to go then. But must I first be healed and equipped? No. You must be called and empowered. There's a difference. Sometimes we're like, I'm, I'm, I'm too broken inside, I can't go. <laughs> well, Peter was still terribly broken, still having in his heart the right kind of mindset that he would deny Jesus. Judas was one of the twelve who went and did miracles and he betrayed him. And the apostles still to the last supper argued about who of them would be the greatest. Their hearts were not healed. Yet long before all those things Played out and happened, Jesus already empowered them with the Holy Spirit and sent them out. So don't say to God, I can't go yet because I'm not yet healed and restored. I can assure you that you'll get a lot of those healing as you go. Because that's how God works. He uses the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. Do you have to be equipped? Equipping is fantastic and it's the work of the fivefold ministers to equip you. And that's what I'm trying to do right now and that's what we're trying to do in church. But should you be, is that a prerequisite before you should go? No. Because he sent them out in Matthew 10. From Matthew 11 he only starts teaching them parables. And all the lessons and things he taught them before Towards the end of Matthew and after he left, he sent them out before that. And that's a good lesson for us. That you don't wait until all the courses are done and then you try to go. No, you go. And that will encourage you all the more to learn more. So, we go. Not ready yet. We are his disciples called to walk in the way that he walks. 1 John 2, 5, B to 6 says that those, um, or at least I'm paraphrasing, but those who claim to know him must walk in the exact same way that he walked. Is that a challenging scripture or what? Those who claim to know him must walk in the same way that he walked. That's what it says. So how's your walk? So anyway, it was, it was, it was, 
understood that the disciples would have to do what Jesus did, because that's what you do. You imitate that you're the disciple maker. That was clear to them in that context. But how on earth are they going to do these things? How are they going to perform miracles? But God gives authority to us. God gave authority to them. He called them to Himself. And He gave them authority over unclean spirits and cast them out and healed every disease and every affliction. So there is that moment in Acts chapter 1 8 where He says, And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power and be my witnesses. So this authority He gave them here was for us, that's that. It's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 thing. The, the Holy Spirit is given to us in the context of witnessing. Acts 1.8. To be my witnesses. The power, glorious power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead that now lives in us. That Jesus said we would do greater things than what He did with. That power is given in the context of us being witnesses. So we can ask for the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit but not experiencing and seeing and working with the Holy Spirit and start wondering whether there maybe is or whether it's maybe the miracles have, have ceased and all of that. So you can start making up doctrines if you haven't seen miracles in the church for the last 50 years then you have to start making up doctrines like that. The Holy Spirit moves actively in us and can move through us as it did then if we would embrace the same going attitude as they did and we see that whenever we go on missions we see that we see a supernatural enablement different to what it normally is if you're just hanging around having a normal day so Acts chapter 1 8 is the is the cry for us should be our cry to God to God to fill us with the Holy Spirit. We are baptized with the Spirit maybe once. It's a doctrinal issue for a different day, but it says we should be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, Acts 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 at Pentecost. Acts 3, Acts 4, and Acts 4, when Peter was released from jail, they were filled with the Holy Spirit again, just two chapters later. You are continually filled, Ephesians 5, 18, 20, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So you're asking for Him in that moment. Before I preach, I say, oh God, the Holy Spirit, I need you to proclaim your truth. I need to be filled with you now. It should be a discipline in our hearts to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit because we're on His mission. So we are empowered by Him and should go as He went. That's, that's the first thing we read verse 1. The next part specifically fond of, and you might not see this coming. The next part, he mentions the names of the twelve apostles. These were the names of the apostles that were sent out. Simon was called Peter, Andrew's brother, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot to betray him. You are not forgotten in God's mission. Your name is important to God while on his mission. His eyes are on you. You are not just one of the masses that needs to go out and harvest. But He makes mention of you. He makes mention of the names. We see endless genealogies in the Bible and Paul and Romans greeting so many people by name. And that's a narrative we shouldn't miss. It's not only for historical context that things are done, but I believe it's because it's the way God is. He's really into each and every one of you. And when we're speaking harvest and you going, His eyes is on you. Celebrating and acknowledging, recognized by God, celebrated and supported by Him and His angels on this mission. He will not abandon you in this, even if everyone else does. I find it 
find that comforting and I find it aligned with the heart of the God I know that's always focused on blessing and celebrating us. Interesting note that I got from here as well is that it's Matthew writing. And it's important to note that it's important for us to make ourselves small in this and not make too much of ourselves even though God recognizes us. If we have the opportunity to not make too much of ourselves. He, he recognizes everyone and then he writes about Matthew, the tax collector. He could have said Matthew who used to be a tax collector but is now a follower of Jesus. He could have said, but he just said, I'm a wretched sinner, but somehow I was called by Jesus. And at that stage in the narrative, I probably, he, he's probably thinking back on this, thinking I still had a lot of tax collecting in me back then, so it's better for me to just say I was a tax collector. He's making himself small. So it's important for us to make ourselves small in the mission of God. But to know that God has got your name, and he's not going to forget you while on his mission. So he sent, the, he empowered them, he calls them by name, and they sent out. They themselves, not making too much of themselves, because they know it's only by the power of God that these things would ever happen. And then an interesting lesson we learn as we read on in Matthew 10, is in verse 5 to 15, a specific mandate is given for this mission. And it's important to note because specific Often people would read this as kind of a generalized mandate for missions, which it isn't. It's that mission. There were other missions. Because in this mission, he instructed them to go nowhere among the Gentiles or into no town of the Samaritans. But Jesus had a mission to Samaria also. So that was a different mission. And there was the Macedonian man calling, calling Paul, and Paul witnessed to the Gentiles. So there was other missions to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans as well. There was other missions that was not about proclaiming this kingdom right now, healing the sick. There was other missions also. There was missions like Timothy, who Paul said, go and appoint elders in every town. There's, a, there's church support missions as well. There, there are all kinds of things that we get called by God to do. There are specific mandates. The gospel is always central in all of them, but we need to hear from God in all these spaces that you envisaged this morning, that you visualized this morning. There is a specific thing that God is busy doing there. So we should Shema, listen and obey in that space. What is the specific mission with the family? What is the specific mission at work? What is the specific mission with my neighbor? Shema. It's a gospel mission. What is it? And so we should hear, because here it's Jesus instructing us, the Lord of the harvest, what the mission is, and how this mission will work. And He's incredibly faithful to do just that. I remember one time we went to Malawi on the mission, and obviously we pray before and as we do now for India. And everything, I've learned everything that we receive in prayer now, is what I want in my pocket as our, as, as a, what can I say, as the plan and agenda for our mission. I've learned that what God shares with us now, that's what we're going to do. So if someone has a word, then well, that's what we're going to do in this mission. One time we went to a place in Malawi, in the middle of nowhere, we drove into the night, into these, we literally took a turn into, straight into bushes, and we were driving through bushes. I think Peter, you were there as well. Was it only Michael? I can't remember. But anyway, we drove. We were just into this bush. I, I couldn't believe the boss was taking us to this unaware. And we arrived at this village in the middle of the night. It felt it was dark at least. And the whole village was there dancing and singing. And we got out. We had to pitch up tents. And someone showed me, this is, the, this is the boss that we're going to work with. And so we sat down and he said, so what's our program going to be? What are we going to do from tomorrow? And I remember being like, how can you even ask that? 
I don't even know where I am. I, I don't even know where I'm going to sleep. I don't even know where the bathroom is. I don't even know what this place looks like. I don't even know if you have a church or if you want us to help you plant the church. Or I would no idea. And then in that moment of sitting there feeling like a 21 year old who had no idea. I remember that God spoke to us and gave us instructions for this mission beforehand in our intercession. So I sat there and I thought, I'm just going to don't tell him that. And so I shared everything that we felt we should be doing and it seemed like a perfect, good, a perfect, good plan and we did that. So there are specific mandates for each mission that we should go and hear from God. Shema, hear it, and go for that. That's what I learned when I look at Matthew 5, Matthew 10, 5 to 15. Okay. Hold on to your seats. Because after that, after that you've been called, you've been equipped, you've been sent, you've received it, you've valued, you're precious. You have your specific mission, you have the focus for whatever it is that you want to focus in on at work. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you want to speak or what you are to say. For what you say, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not the whole of 16 to 25 in there, but that's the portion that speaks about persecution. I just took out this little snippet. When we go, we should know that there will be persecution. When yes, there is persecution, and when you are hated, they say you will, they will hate you because they hated me first. It's not you did a bad job and I everybody hates you. No, 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 no. Oh, I messed it up and I everybody hates me at work. If you do it really well, you might be hated at work. That's not you. You didn't mess it up. And sometimes we're afraid of that. As sheep, I like all these all, all, all these animals. Sheep, sheep in the middle of wolves, so be wise as serpents into this doves. And I was trying to imagine sheep um, like acting like serpents and um, doves at the same time. It's quite a, quite a cool kind of a sheep. And there's this little story that Donnell loves to watch called Sean the Sheep. Any parents know Sean the Sheep? I think Sean the Sheep is that kind of a sheep. He's a sheep and he knows it. But he's quite, he's quite cunning. Most of the time rather innocent. But it just speaks to the fact that on mission, and we're always on mission, and this is why we need specific instructions for the neighbors and for work and for and for family, we need these things because we're on mission there. And we should be with God in those spaces, sensitive with the Holy Spirit. And when we are on those missions, we should know that we are like sheep in the midst of wolves. Recognize that. Be careful and be smart. It says here, be careful and be smart. But don't compromise. It's no use to go to jail for a stupid reason. Okay? Or to just prove to everyone that you're amazing. So you go out with your loudspeaker in the middle of Saudi Arabia. And there you go. Like, okay, great. You're in jail. I'm in jail because I preach the gospel. Great. You just have to be very careful because that might be more about you than anything else. Um, and you think, well, finally, I should go to heaven now because this is this is pretty impressive. Um, that's not going to be good enough. But it's no reason going to jail for stupid reason. But it is, there's a great need for more Christians to go to jail for great reasons and for gospel reasons. So we should be smart and careful. We shouldn't compromise. That's what he's saying. And like sheep, not like wolves, a sheep is ready to be slaughtered when the time is coming. A wolf is there to devour others. 
to make the most for himself. Sheep is not like that. A sheep follows where he's led and he knows that he's vulnerable in that. But then, Jesus says we have to be beware of men. That they will deliver you over to courts and flog you. He promises his disciples they will be flogged. Now, quite a few disciples endured a few things worse than flogging. But we are encouraged here to know that we might sign up to be flogged. And we scared of much lesser things than that. So flogging in the Jewish context, so this is the, the hand you over to courts and flogging in their synagogues. So it was a Roman flogging like Jesus received before the cross. That's way worse than a Jewish flogging. A Jewish flogging would be a, a smaller whip they would make and the they would give you 40 minus 1 lashes, so 39, any accountants in the minute can help me, but 39 lashes for you to start behaving correctly. So they would tie your hands together to a specific pole and a third of the lashes would be to your front and two thirds to the back. That would be church discipline. And so that money, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, I know the guys in the synagogue is going to do that to you when you come under this message. You will be. You, they will deliver you to be flogged. How do you relate to that? How, how do you relate to that? Are you, are, are, are you ready to be flogged? And so we're afraid of much lesser things. We're afraid of losing our jobs. We're afraid of, you know, being maligned by friends and family and things like that. But yeah, that Jesus is straight up saying you're going to be flogged. Roman flogging was worse because they put all kinds of metal and like bony things into the whip, and they didn't necessarily have the conviction to stop at 39. And you'll be dragged for covenants and kings for what? For my sake. For what? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You will be there. You will be flogged. To bear witness. So when you're in that space, the call is actually to be in that space, not running away thinking, how oh, on earth can I get away from this right now? But if you really should be there, Jesus is saying, you're there to bear witness for me. You're there to bear witness. And obviously that's a difficult situation and he knows that. He says you don't have to worry about what you ought to say for it will, for it will be given to you in that hour. The Holy Spirit will come over you and you will know what to say. And it will be for the sake of witnessing. It won't be to, to get you off necessarily. It might actually get you off as well. It often happens. But I think we should just recognize the fact that this is the cost we are counting. This is the cost the first disciples had to count when they said yes. Others. Have you, have you made that move in your head? That you're the same kind of disciple, the same kind of Jesus, and the same kind of call to the same world who hates us. They hate the message. And there's a lot of people dying for their faith all over. How do you reflect on that? Because the follower of Christ should be more focused on the gospel to be shared than on his life to be spared.
in our hearts. Then, the second last bit, we are encouraged then with an eternal perspective. From verse 26 to 33 it says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not, all, are not two sparrows sold for one penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. He brings in heaven and now here and saying, this is, there's, a, there's a bigger narrative here before you want to run away. There's a bigger narrative here. I know this is intense. I know this is rough. might be fearful for those who can kill the body, but the fear of God, the beginning of wisdom, should keep us so that we will go because the fear of God in us is greater than the fear of man. Because if we start and continue in denying God, we will be denied one day. And so the fear of God, we are going to be fearful of men. Jesus was fearful to go to the cross. That's fine. So don't sit and wait for your fear of man to get less. Has anyone ever experienced the fear of man? Hands up? Alright. So did Jesus when they wanted to crucify him. That's okay. The fear of God should be great. It should be the great reality. He says fear that rather. That's, that's the first thing. So that we're not stopped by the fear of man. But we go forward because of the fear of God. The second thing he says there is that the same God that you do fear, I want you to know that you are of incredible value to him. He's not out to destroy you, he's out to save you and bless you. You're of incredible value to him. He is the judge that can that will judge at the end. And there is a heaven and a hell. And some who reject him will end up in hell, and some who does not reject him will go to heaven. He is that God. But He's also the God who knows the hairs on your head and who loves you and who cares for, for you. And He values you highly. That's the second bit of encouragement He gives you. And then the last bit of encouragement He says there's, there's no wisdom in denying God before men because you're afraid that might kill your body. If that very act of denying God might be the thing that gets you eternally into eternal death. So it doesn't make logical sense for you to deny Him because you're afraid of your body or your life. If there is a greater reality at stake, if you would deny Him, you will deny Him before the Father. Now, this kind of, and I just want to clarify this, it, it sounds like an unforgivable sin. So then, what then? That means he's going to deny you. Well, it also says that everyone who acknowledges him before me, have you, have you acknowledged them? Which one will win at the end of the day? But I, so it's definitely not that unforgivable sin. But it is a very dangerous one. It's one that if you would persist in that, to save your life, that it is, it would become the unforgivable sin if you would have Persistent denying Jesus. That's how I read it. There was a man called Peter who, after this, denied Jesus three times, and the grace of God called him back in, and he preached this first sermon. Three thousand people came to salvation. Isn't that amazing? So, don't make more of this than you should. Don't make less of this. Either. There's a story of one of my French ancestors who wrote the whole journey of how they were persecuted as French Huguenots um, back there, and he was actually locked up 
away from his family in a small little room that he couldn't even, he couldn't lie straight to sleep. I think he was in there for nine months. And then he thought his family would by now be dead because his wife, the wife, tried burning her homes. They were unsuccessful. And so he thought, I just have to get to my family. So he became a little bit mad in that cell for nine months. And then one day they came to him with a resolution and said, if you, if you sign this, you can, you can, you can go back out again. And he knew what it was. He knew it. He conceded to him saying, I'm Roman Catholic again. So, but he didn't look at it. He just thought, I'm going to go to my family. And he signed it. And he left. And they released him. The trauma in his soul that he writes, it's unbearable. He says, <laughs> he thought, is it, is it all over now? Is it, is it all over? Like, am I going to go to hell? You know, and how, how people would counsel him and would help him through that and would try to convince him that there is a God who forgives our sin and that you're a weak man and he doesn't do that. And, and so I do believe there is forgiveness for real repentance in these instances. And that's the end of his story as well. But what he went through, the value of death he went through because of that is great. Nothing would, would have us be, be spared of that. Because if we continue in that way, we might sear our conscience and actually walk away from God. So here he's encouraging us to fear God more than men. That he really cares for us. And that it makes no logical sense to avoid to die physically, but die eternally. And then to close off, verse 38 39, the missionaries, the orientation of the missionary, you can say, Jesus wraps up this discourse in a way. And he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever does not take his cross, but they didn't know that then that he would go to the cross. We know that. <coughs> but the cross, all they knew about that is that it's the way that you die. It's the most painful way to die. So they were called to take up the same cross as he did. Say, so if you do not, you're not worthy of it. It asks, it, it, it asks the same question as the one that we've been asking all along. Have you really signed up for this? Is your faith worth this to you? For whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. If we focus on our life, says it leads to death. But if we focus on following, it leads to life. He came so we may have life in abundance. But if we mistake that and try to figure out our own abundance, how can I be found? How can my life work out? How can I have a lot of peace and joy and everything I want? What are my dreams? There's a secular Christianity that's incredibly dangerous because it plays with these and it makes them more than acceptable. It says in a way they are the command of God. You should design them to fulfill your dreams. Sure. More often than not, they're just idols that we are chasing. Because if you ask yourself how much of that is about expanding the kingdom of God and the gospel, and can you really tell me how you received it from Jesus? Because if that dream and desire on your heart, if you can tell me, if I ask you, what's the Jesus story behind that? And you smile and you think, oh, let me tell you how, how it's told. And that's, that's wonderful. And you know what my experience has been that in those, in those places, He blesses you more than what you ever thought you could. You think you're signing up for death, and you do, you are. But then He's there to give you more life than what you've ever experienced. And the kind of life that you couldn't experience in any other way. The kind of joy that you, that you can't experience in any other way. So are you focusing on your life this morning? Or are you focusing
on following as he leads for his answer to proclaim his name. A life concerned with God's mission is a life not concerned about your own. A life concerned with God's mission is a life not concerned about your own. Let God be the one who knows how many is on, is on your head. And you let that go to him. Can we, can we all stand? We're going to pray blessing to us this morning. There are two things I want us to respond to. The one is this laying down all that effort that you go through to make your life work and to make it great. And to give the life to God. How many of you have given your lives to God? But then in this context it just means something different, doesn't it? I want you to lay down all the effort you are spending in making your life great. Lay that down and give it to God who's much better at life and abundance than you are. And say yes to follow. That's the first thing. Lay down, lay down, lay down, lay down. Let it go. Let it go. And where you've mixed your theology in with this in a way that's not consistent with scripture and the way God has made you, let it go. What's the focus? To seek your life? You want to find your life because you will lose it. <coughs> don't care about it. You start losing it for His name's sake. You'll find life. You'll find Him. And He's the one who gives you life. That's the first thing I want to respond. You to respond to this morning. Lay it down. Lay it down. Is there anyone who needs to lay that down?
minds that's ministering to hearts right now and saying, oh, I'm so far off, I'm so messed up. I can't even respond to this message. I speak to those lies that comes from the devil. And I thank you that we can be reminded of your disciples that were lost and broken men that you chose and empowered and you just need a yes from us. You can run a million miles away from God, but it only takes one step to be back. You don't have to run the hundred million miles back. It's one step in your back, always. If you turn with a sincere heart towards God, He never rejects you. He never rejects you. So all of you, every one of us who says, God, I want to be there. I want to lay it down. I want to follow you. You are invited. And you are not far off because of the blood of the Lamb. Yes, Lord, I thank you that you laid it all down. And so, in this moment, the response of my heart towards you, I say, oh Lord, I want to imitate you and I want to lay it all down. You hear the echoes in our hearts, God. 
would you work on it? Would you breathe in it on us? And from here we say, Lord, that we need the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to accompany our yes. We need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit with me this morning. It's the cry in your heart, and God sees the cry in your heart this morning for that. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord? Would you fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit so that I can be a witness? Would you fill us, Lord?